1: Do you like how I mimicked you?
2: Yes. My goodness. Wait, that would be a great costume for us to just be an echo. Be my echo. Be my echo. New costume idea. Halloween is actually not that far away, so. I know. And I already have my costume planned for my office. You do? Halloween party. That will be a thing because I'm on the party planning committee, so of course it's going to happen. Your goals. I just, I can't think that far ahead into life. Well, do you want to know what we're going to do? Sure. And this is, um, I don't, I'm pretty positive no one from work listens to the podcast. So I'm not <laughs> going to spill the beans on anything. Okay. But when people join work, they answer a couple get to know you questions. And one of them is if you were a TV, movie, or book character, who would you be? Mm-hmm. And so everybody has one on their public profile. And so for Halloween, when we send out a costume party invitation for, like, you know, an in-office happy hour or whatever, we're going to ask that everybody dresses up like the character they chose. Oh, fun. I want to know, what's your character? Monica from Friends. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yep. I'm excited. Oh, wait. This is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost.
1: And we are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Hello. And I'm Sabrina.
2: And... I currently have two kittens playing on my feet, and it's the best thing in the world. you just surrounded by the kitties. Is there a timeline as to when Raviolian and Yoki are supposed to be adopted? They are available for adoption officially because they are over two
1: pounds. They're such big boys. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, I think it will take a little bit of time to get them adopted. They still need to get neutered, but they are officially up for adoption. So if you're interested, fill out an application. Fill out an application where, Sabrina? Where are they? Well, you can send an email to Podcast at gmail.com, and I will send you all the information directly to you. They are available for adoption through Stray Cat Alliance, and they have a website, straycatalliance.org. And you fill out an application on there, and it usually takes two to three weeks to process. So I'd get on an ASAP if you want to adopt these little boys.
2: Two pounds. Do you use them as weights? You know how people do? They do, like, baby classes where they use their baby as dead weight. Do you ever put one in each hand? Yeah. Just do a little little bit of bicep curls. Like this? (laughs) I should. Yeah, maybe not. I should. I don't know if they would enjoy that, but
1: I don't think weights are supposed to squirm. Oh, so cute. (laughs) They're the cutest. They actually started cuddling with us in bed at night, which Leia is annoyed about because she's like, well, this is my bed.
2: But they're so sweet. I love them. It's going to be hard to give them up. You know, Leia, because the kittens are always with you when we record now, Leia's like not in the background. She's just avoiding (laughs) the room. I know.
1: Well, if she were in here, it'd be a little bit of hissing Mm -hmm. and some growling. But I realize that Leia might not know how to play because she never grew up with a buddy. So her version of playing might be hissing. I don't know. She'll be happy to have the home back to herself. (laughs) yeah so adopt these kitties. adopt them um okay i watched this is great for our episode today because i watched conjuring three
2: the devil made me do it what did you think of it i thought it was great i'm a huge fan of the have you seen it no not yet but i saw one negative review and it made me think i shouldn't Watch it. But now... What was the negative review? I think it just said, like, doesn't everyone agree that Conjuring 3 sucked or something like that? Like, there was no reason. Someone just didn't like it. Oh.
1: Well, maybe I'm biased. I don't know. I just love the Warrens and those stories and... We covered Arne Cheyenne Johnson on the podcast in the very first episode of Dominus, like in Dominus episode 12. And I think I realized how terribly I did that research because the movie, granted, I'm sure some of it's fictionalized, but it goes into this like whole thing about how he was like part of a possession or an exorcism of this other kid. And like the demon kind of took over him instead It's this whole thing that I didn't realize had happened. And maybe I did at the time. I don't know. I have to go back and listen and see if I did any justice to that story. But I thought it was really good. I enjoyed it.
2: Okay. I need to – where did you watch it? Did you have to rent it? Is it out? It's on HBO Max. Okay. Okay. Well, then I'm for sure going to watch it. You should. Does Brian like scary movies? No. 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 Anytime he's out and I'm at home – He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm watching TV. And he was a scary movie. And I go, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have to watch it when he's not here. Oh. He does not like it. Well. But I told you, did you ever watch Horse Girl on Netflix? Uh, I haven't watched it yet. Okay. Horse Girl, it's worth a watch. It's a little slower paced. It's just really good. It just shows someone's potential mental collapse, but also brings in all of these themes of paranormal alien abduction, familial hauntings. And so you're constantly being thrown in either group of believing that she is – experiencing mental illness and it's Hmm. coming forward and that everyone in her family had this mental illness and it's now affecting her versus being like, wait, no, I think this actually is an alien abduction. And it's really interesting. Also, the way they shoot it is you don't really trust her as a narrator. She's super unreliable. And so what you're seeing, you're not sure if it's her own delusion that you're watching or if she's actually being abducted or not. Oh, my gosh. It was just I was like... Yeah. I love movies
1: like that cuz it really just messes with your mind and you it's an unreliable narrator. You don't know what
2: what's real and what's not. It's so good. But it made me think, and I can't remember if this is an email in our inbox that I plan to read, if I read this somewhere else, if it was on TikTok or if we previously read it <laughs> because everything is mush in my brain. Like, yeah. But last encounters, we read an email and then we played a little bit of the excerpt of the guy saying like, do you have children? <gasps> oh my God, it's so scary. It was like very robotic. Yeah. And there was something else. Honestly, I think it was a TikTok. Where someone was talking about um, like being abducted by aliens and having a small piece of memory of being with the aliens and that the voices do sound like if you put, you know, like Google Translate together and just press play. Because they're probably speaking through machines to like translate it. So I was like, "Ooh, I think it was an alien abduction. What was it? Oh, this is bothering me. I can't remember. I,
1: I feel like it's pretty much safe to say it was TikTok at this point in your life. I only go on TikTok and exactly. record our podcast. So it either came from phantoms <laughs>
2: or from TikTok. TikTok.
1: Yeah, you're right. Kind of on a similar trajectory, there's this book that I'm reading, and I feel like a lot of people have read it because it's a pretty popular book right now, but it's called The Midnight Library. Oh, and it's really, really good. And it's about this woman who is in between life and death, and she kind of wants to die, but in this place of the in between, She's like in a library. It's filled with books of every possibility of her life. So there's like infinite number of books. And she lives through the different versions of her life and realizes like Well, just like dealing with regret and like life and happiness and all of this stuff. And it's really, really interesting. And it's kind of what we talk about, like parallel universes, about how like at any second one decision sends you kind of into another universe, whereas there's another universe where like you decided to eat pasta
2: instead of pizza, you know? This makes me wonder. I want to know the author's writing process. Was this something – because it sounds so confusing and like there's so many different components that I'm curious to know if the author – sat down and mapped out what all of the changes in the universes and possibilities were or if they just like wrote and just saw where the choices in life
1: took them yeah i don't know We'll have to ask because every writer has a different process. Is
2: this a new book? Because I feel like I've been seeing it all over the place.
1: It is newer. I want to say probably in the last two years. It's mm, okay, more last year it came it came out. But um, it's I've uh, multiple people recommended it to me when I posted that I was reading The Lost Apothecary on Instagram, and people were like, "Oh, if you like that, you'll really like the Midnight Library." And I
2: do. I love it. Okay, I'm going to get that. I'll probably have to sign up with the library to rent from boston public library on am a kindle you should but i'm going to i'm going to add it right now to my goodreads do you have i think i've asked you this a million times do you have goodreads i do do you record what you are reading on there sometimes i'll go through phases where i'm like oh let me update
1: it and then i go through phases of just not going on it for months
2: mm. oh i already marked it as want to read <laughs> oh there we go honestly i think i saw it in a bookstore and probably scanned it into this but Goodreads, I love Goodreads, and also you just tell me every time you're reading something, so that's really helpful.
0: hmm Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Alrighty, so this is what, what, Dominus part five? Part six? Six, six, six. six. Ooh, creepy. Dominus part six. And you can consider this Dominus Part 6 thanks to Alex, who's a Patreon donor, who picked poltergeists as the topic of choice.
1: It's funny because we love our Dominus episodes, but they also take a lot out of us because they are truly terrifying. And there's something about diving into the world of, like, exorcisms and poltergeists and demons that – while I'm extremely drawn to them because I have a dark mind and so do you,
2: Corinne. It's like unsettling. I have nightmares after I do the research. Yeah, it's brutal. And it's also – I feel like there's the fear that because we're doing such a deep dive into it – because another thing, we want to do it justice, these stories and these horrible things that people experience. So I think – I think it takes us like double the amount of time to research it yeah. as a normal episode. And because we're spending so much time, I have this fear that the demon is going to know that I'm thinking about it and writing about it and about to talk about it. It probably does. And
1: it's going to come find me. I I believe that. I believe that fully. I be, I don't believe it's going to come find you. Don't, that's not – I don't believe that. I don't want to put that in the universe. But I believe that they know. I think you're too strong-willed and they they're like, it's not worth my time.
2: Yeah, it let, let us hope because, <laughs> my God, the things that we read about. And this is us just reading about it and we're this scared. Imagine the people that actually experience
1: it and go through it. What makes me so uneasy about it is at least my story that I did research for this week. There's no explanation or reason as to why it happened or why them, why this person, why this family, why they were chosen, why they were plagued by this entity for so long – And it's just like, it could happen to anyone. It really could. It could happen to you. It could happen to me. It could happen to our listeners.
2: Anyone. All right. Well, should we dive in? Yeah, please. Okay. Well, I'm about to tell you about a haunting that will keep you up all night long. Good. Just like it kept me up doing my research and Sabrina doing her own. This haunting is proof that demons do not discriminate This case is lesser known, though it recently found itself in the spotlight after an English author, her name is Kate Summerscale, she wrote a book on the case. So it's a nonfiction book, she did a ton of research, and it's called The Haunting of Alma Fielding. And so what a lot of what I'm about to say comes from her research and is what I learned through Kate Summerscale and a lot of the uh, articles on her and her book. And I plan to read the book now, but she did a ton of research. Okay. So this is the chilling tale of the Thornton Heath poltergeist and the possession of Alma Fielding. Wow. Within the London borough of Croydon is a town called Thornton Heath. And Thornton Heath made headlines back in the 1930s. So we're 90 years in the past right now for a poltergeist who terrorized a family and in particular a housewife named Alma. So the year was exactly 1938 and the Sunday pictorial which was a newspaper, they put out a call to all of their readers to share paranormal encounters that they had. Just like a fun little thing to to put out in their newspaper. And so Alma Fielding, she reads this newspaper, she sees the call, and she acts on this call to action. Mm-hmm. She's a 34-year-old housewife living in Thornton Heath, and she grew up there, and she calls the paper. She's now married, she has a kid, and her and her family are experiencing a lot of strange activity. And I say strange activity, but really, at this point, by the time she called, it was horrible. Like, it, full-on haunting poltergeist activity oh my gosh so she calls them and she's like yeah i'm haunted my husband les is haunted our home is on beaverston road and we're just experiencing some really bad paranormal activity and she told them that she thought about calling the police but believed it to be a work of a ghost and in her words she said a ghost didn't seem a case for the police i mean fair i love that fair she's like you know, so I'm not going to get answers here. So I may as well just yeah. contact the newspaper if they're asking. Wow. So th- this whole time she just sat and apparently didn't do anything. And it's so bad by the time reporters come. So she went on to tell the reporter that one evening she and her husband were laying in their bed and a tumbler spontaneously shattered. And now with their attention on the room together, they witness a light bulb move from the bedside table. It's still glowing and can feel the heat coming off of it. And it moves through the air to the other side of the room. And their gasps and their worried voices were overheard by their son, Don, who was 16. And he came into the room to check on his parents. And as he walked in, a pot of face cream whipped across the bedroom and narrowly missed hitting him. And this family, they also had a roommate named George who also came in to investigate because there was so much commotion. And when he was in view of everyone in the room, he was hit by flying coins. So something grabbed a few coins and just tossed them at him. And then in the bedroom, the mirror suddenly had a handprint (gasps) appear on it. And this handprint had six fingers.
1: Oh, anything with like mirrors and handprints appearing. Six fingers.
2: Right. And so at this point, it's like, whoa, that's a wild story. If this is real, that is just to absolutely terrifying, but also, okay, this is all one family saying this, plus their roommate. Like, what's the catch? What are – are they just trying to get attention? So, intrigued, the Sunday pictorial, they send two reporters to investigate the claims. And Alma, she welcomes them in. She's like, come on in. Welcome to my home. And she opens the door to let them in. And as she does, an egg flew down the hallway, past Alma, and landed at the feet of the reporters standing at the door. At least it's at the feet. At the feet, yes. But without giving too much time for the newspaper reporters to maybe be like, oh, well, is this essentially like question the authenticity of the thrown demon egg, thinking maybe someone else threw it. There was no time to even think that Alma planned this because then a pink China doll fell to the floor, shattering. And then a can opener whipped through the air past the reporters at head height, so almost hit them. But still, the reporters, they entered the home. <laughs> I just have so many questions because it's like, if you're a demon
1: and your goal is to possess a person, Mm -hmm. don't you want to isolate them and not appear to a bunch of reporters? Because then it's like, oh, you're validating the experiences, which is good for Alma's life. But I just I have notes on the demons performance, yeah,
2: and also in the past, I think you're right that it, it's usually one person singled out and and made to feel isolated so that they're more easily manipulated, mm-hmm. and their energy is more easily taken from them, I guess, yeah, so it is interesting that it was just kind of it was like a it was like a circus essentially, right just, just step on up, grab a ticket, this entity wanted the spotlight, I guess, right, yeah, and this entity got it, and so did Alma. <laughs> Alma was very beautiful. She was very put together, which everyone thought to be quite a strange juxtaposition against the shattered belongings of the fieldings that grew as the poltergeist made its presence known Mm -hmm. with every passing day. So while this group, while Alma and her family and the two reporters from the newspaper were in the front parlor, a wine glass made its way out of a locked cabinet (sighs) in the kitchen And then smashed onto the ground. Also, Alma had been holding a teacup and a saucer while she was speaking to the researchers, which I'm like, yes, girl, calm yourself down, steady yourself, you know, have something soothing while you're recounting these terrorizing experiences at the hands of a poltergeist. It's a nice chamomile tea. Yes, you would think so. But she's sitting there and she's holding the cup and she's (laughs) holding the saucer. And the teacup and saucer are then plucked out of her hands by an unseen force, and the saucer is split in half neatly mid-air. And how everyone is not running out screaming at this point is maybe perhaps an even greater mystery than the Thornton Heath poltergeist. But alas, they still stayed. They stayed in the room, they stayed in the house.
1: It's just terrifying how physical these ghosts are. Yes. Or th- it was this- constant. Yes. And, like, how easily that could – I mean, it threw a can opener at their heads. Like, I feel like it so
2: easily could be harmful and – Well, and it does escalate, so – Of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah, you thought this was bad. This was the beginning. So these two reporters, I think they've seen enough, but still they stay and they continue talking to Alma and her family. And then coal from the living room fireplace hurls towards the wall, smashing into it and leaving behind some ash. The clump of coal is just at the bottom of the floor now. And so the reporters, they take a picture of Alma, her husband, and her son all looking down at the lump of coal. And that's the picture that's printed on the inside page of the Sunday Pictorial with occupants of the House of Fear labeled underneath the photo. And then later a front page story titled Ghost Rex Home Family Terrorized oh was gosh. printed about them. And that's all in one one sitting. Yes. Two reporters went, they saw like five oh my gosh. Not even could that be a haunting? Like things were being hurled and broken and yeah, yeah. it was there's no debate. Yeah. Right. And so now the people of Croydon are overcome with intrigue because there's a poltergeist in their burrow. And it's really exciting news for the 1930s, especially when there's a lot of other negative things happening in the world. So something even as scary as a poltergeist is still kind of delightful uh, for everyone to experience and read about. And it's different and not well documented or heard of.
1: Like, I think if that came out in the news right now, everyone would be so interested in it.
2: Yes. Also, this was sort of the age of spiritualism. And so I Mm. think there were certain stories circulating and a lot of paranormal investigators that were operating back then. And so maybe it wasn't super out of the norm now when we look back from a historical perspective. But in the moment, I don't know how much information was being shared and how much everybody heard from a day-to-day basis. Mm. But regardless, people who read the Sunday pictorial, they were like, heck yes. This is so interesting. Let's go to the house and, you know, have a chance to see this poltergeist in action. Oh, my gosh. And so Alma Fielding's family and the poltergeist essentially become an exhibit. And this – people are, like, flocking to the streets, flocking to the house every single day. And so this caught the eye of ghost hunter Nander Fodor – He had recently established the International Institute of Psychical Research. And you might be like, wait, that name kind of sounds familiar. And you would be right to think so because he was the investigator who looked into Jeff the Mongoose,
0: which we covered in episode 104.
2: Jeff. Oh, I miss Jeff. Jeff. I love Jeff the Mongoose.
1: I miss Jeff the Mongoose. (laughs) I feel like a maternal instinct towards Jeff the
2: Mongoose. He was like a weird poltergeist. I was like, I could kill you, but I will. Oh. But I like living in your walls. Yeah, it was very interesting. But honestly, think about it. Like, that was <laughs> that case. It was so bizarre. And now, Forder's sent to this new case. Everything he investigates is just so extreme. Yeah. So he sends a former colleague of his, a retired anesthesiologist, Dr. Gerald Wills, who then, with Alma and her family inside the house, witnesses the cat's plate, still filled with scraps, levitate and then shoot through the air towards the back door, hitting it and shattering. And then other people start coming in. So there are more reporters that were sent in. One reporter from another newspaper called the Croydon Advertiser stayed overnight in the house. Mm. And he was downstairs kind of entertaining himself, playing darts. And he heard this really loud thud upstairs. And upon investigating, he saw that a heavy wardrobe had actually fallen and landed on the bed in the room where he would be sleeping that night. So essentially it was a threat of physical harm. And then in addition to many more researchers, Alma's friends and family, they attempt to continue their relationships with her. They come over for tea, and they're, like, dodging glasses and food as it's all thrown around. Jeez. On Fodor's team, they counted 36 broken tumblers, 24 broken wine glasses, and 15 broken egg cups in their investigation. And this is in addition to all of the items that had been tossed to Alma that have not been broken – or have not been replaced like rugs and silverware and bigger furniture like chairs the fire screen from the fireplace. My question is does home insurance cover this? Like
1: does it cover poltergeist activity because this is a lot of broken items that I feel
2: like I sound valuable. I mean, was there insurance in the 1930s? I don't
1: I don't know. <laughs>
2: I actually have no idea. That's a good question. I don't know, but they yeah, there was so much that was broken and I will say not that this makes it any better for how much damage was done to, I'm sure, their their psyche and their physical possessions. Mm-hmm. But they were more upper middle class. So okay. in some of the research that Kate Summerscale had done in, in some of the reports – that I read on her and her work in the Alma Fielding case, I read that in the area it was common for people to essentially have like a two-bedroom home and they had a three-bedroom home, which that was an important distinction because that just meant that they were a little bit more – uh, well off. Okay, interesting. I mean, they had egg bowls. I mean, maybe that was more common then. Yes, there's actually every single time I think of an egg bowl, I think it's that little thing that you just put one egg yeah. in and you crack. That's what I think, and it always makes me think of that children's book. It was called like Toad and Frog or something like that, because they would always crack their little eggs, and I was like, oh, as a younger kid, I wanted that so bad. My mom was like, we do not need that. <laughs> we do not eat eggs like that. Stop asking. <laughs> that it just to
1: me, it reminds me of like. Peaky blinders and the crown. Like, I just feel like royalty used those. Yes.
2: I guess it's very English. It is very English. So in addition to all of the items that have been broken or thrown at her, there's also ornaments. So this is somewhat around the time of, of Christmas passing, and they had some ornaments that had proof of poltergeist activity in them because they were indented as if someone had squeezed the ball Ooh. and left their finger impressions behind. Their six-finger impressions? Yeah. And so, while everyone's trying to, you know, so I guess somewhat either see slash investigate the poltergeist or make Alma feel less alone uh, with all the activity happening around her, there's one person who's like, "Get me away!" and that's her son, Don. He was 16 at the time, and he was so frightened. I don't. So for them. a period of time, he actually moved out. Wow. So at this point, there are so many people gathered outside of the house day after day, and it's becoming an issue in addition to the poltergeist inside, that is. And for public safety and for the safety of the family inside, if you can call inside safe (laughs) for the poltergeist, a police officer is sent to go stand at the front door. And when he first takes his position, the doormat lifts from the ground and wraps itself around his head. (gasps) What? Around his head? Yes. So the poltergeist is not only bold, but it's now trading the house and it's torment of Alma and her family like its own show. So kind of like what we were saying before. It's just like, look at me, look at me. I'm doing activity for everybody. It wants the attention. Right. Yeah. Free show, all the attention. And honestly, some of the activity starts to get a little bit comedic. Like at one point... It balanced the kettle lid on top of the cat's head like a beret, people were saying. This reminds me of, like, Cat in the Hat. Oh, <laughs> my <laughs> Doesn't it? When did Dr. Seuss pass away? Is this him in accidental poltergeist form? Oh. Did he just mean to be a silly old ghost and then ended up being way too active? I think he died, oh, yeah, 91.
1: 1991. Oh. <laughs> okay. So, that's, uh, we're yeah. very off. Way later.
2: Yeah. 60 years off. Uh, well, Anyway, this poltergeist, whether it be comedic or terrifying, it is gaining strength, but so is Alma. So her ability to channel spirits or perhaps be possessed by this poltergeist, it increases. And soon she's brought to seance rooms, she's brought to labs, and she's put to the test by many researchers, sometimes 50 people at a time, all surrounding her. And she goes into a trance, items will move and fly around the room, rooms that... Have been set up and her brought in so she couldn't set anything up as a hoax. And cold breezes are wafting through the space. At one point, the scent of violet suddenly fills one of the rooms. And Alma actually makes contact with a spirit guide named Bremba, a Persian spirit, who speaks through Alma in a really deep voice. And at times, Alma, when she's channeling these spirits, she just loses consciousness completely. And when she returns, she actually talks about things that happened in other places. So she'll (sighs) report on things from a place that's a few towns over, a couple countries over. Oh, my gosh. So she like astral travels. Exactly. (gasps) Yes. So like the spirit is inhabiting her and pushing her astral body out. And she's just like exploring until she's – Whoa. It's open and available again for her to come back. Into her body, which is really creepy. That's so creepy. Yes. And so some people are like, whoa, we are so impressed with Alma and her abilities. This is something so unseen ever before. It's miraculous. But others are still skeptical and they believe it to be a hoax. And so the tests done to make sure this isn't a hoax become darker, oh, they no. become more intrusive, and Alma becomes basically a thing a test subject not really a person so they start having her strip completely naked in front of a room of women before entering the seance room and she'll strip and be investigated by these women no when she's in the room her ankles and her wrists will be tied together like she's basically hog tied (gasps) and then her tights will be sewn to her underwear her nose her ears mouth teeth, hair, just like really any orifice or or like anywhere that she could potentially hide something are thoroughly searched. This is awful. Very awful. And investigators, this is the part that really appalls me. They all take turns patting her down as she makes her way through the room. So everyone is touching her everywhere. It's so
1: upsetting. Like, not only is her house not hers, her body no longer is hers. And all she wanted was like a little bit of help. Like, She didn't want to call the police because she didn't think they would help. And then she sends her
2: submission to the newspaper to like help get answers. And it just makes her a spectacle. Right. And it's also like, why is it her job to make everyone else believe her? It shouldn't be about her. It should be about proving the poltergeist activity, not right. that she's a hoaxer. Right, I just think that there's a distinction in a line and some of the practices were quite disturbing. And I know other people think that too from something I'll talk about later. Um, But essentially she's like thoroughly searched and people see nothing. There are no tricks, no equipment. Professional magicians are brought in and they can't even pinpoint how she'd possibly be faking it. But Fodor still thinks that she could potentially be faking it. He's like – he's so determined to debunk this. And Mm. apparently in this time period, he was kind of already in hot water with some of his practices and some of his treatment of other cases and some of his theories. And so – I think he had a little bit more to prove and maybe went a little mad with this case. Interesting. So he actually is like, I think I spotted something at one point. I think she has something on her body. So he brings in an x-ray machine to scan her. And then he says from the x-ray results that there actually are a few suspicious items hidden on Alma. And so then Alma and the poltergeist because of this accusation, become enraged. The room fills with a rotten odor. Everyone sitting in the room suddenly begins to feel ill and deep bloody scars inexplicably appear on her arms and on her shoulders. And when anyone tries to touch her, her skin breaks out into welts. And she was able to actually summon small animals to her. She materialized jewelry from thin air. uh, Mm. And she could even rob stores without ever leaving the room. So the fact that she could do all of those things then has this huge physical reaction when accused of faking it. And then the room smells like rot and everybody falls ill. Like, how could you possibly be like, yeah, she's got some special machine under her armpit? Like, that to me, if this actually happened and this is all true and these reports are factual, I don't think there's any way in hell she was somehow making this into a hoax. Well, it just proves, like, we as humans are not capable of understanding
1: things that we can't explain. And when we can't explain something, we then call it, like, witchery or someone's, like, manipulating us rather than, like,
2: believing that there's something beyond ourselves that we can't explain it's true and honestly we're living through one of the examples right now i feel like i've brought it up so many different times but you know when we started this podcast there was still a lot of people with the sentiment that ufos are not real aliens can't possibly exist Mm -hmm. and now we are about a year in to many different military groups and countries and governments releasing evidence that that's actually not true that they they are real and exist and we know that yeah. But it's hard when when everything in your body wants to think that it's not true because the truth is so scary.
1: And also we've been, we as humans believe we're the superior being and that there's nothing more intelligent than us and we are
2: godly. Yeah. And it's also, yeah, it depends on where you grew up. It's societal. It's, you know, there are different countries and religions and cultural yeah. groups that totally do believe in, in all of that. And guess what? They were right. All I will say is I am so glad
1: I grew up with parents who totally believed in the paranormal, saw ghosts, and, like, Mm -hmm. opened me up to that. Because I feel like that just opened me up to so many possibilities and opened my mind to things that I, you know. I agree with you. Grateful.
2: Yeah. And actually, I encourage everyone – this is something that I did with my mom a lot when we were younger. If you're out of a city, if you're in a place that has – where you can very easily see the stars at night – Just lay on your back and watch the stars for 30 minutes and you will see stuff you can't explain. Yes, there are shooting stars. Yes, there are satellites that blink and go across. Yes, there are airplanes that, you know, do a curve. But then there's also really fast lights that zigzag around and don't quite make sense. Mm -hmm. So do that. Anyway, Alma, she's pissed and the poltergeist is pissed. How dare Fodor say that she's faking it. And then the voices that come out of her are not hers, and they are frightening. There's a little girl's voice that escapes Alma's mouth, begging for her mom. And then Alma's stomach begins to swell, appearing as though she's (gasps) pregnant. No, no, no. Yes. Creepy. It's like the omen, basically. Ugh. Oh. And so all of this stuff is happening. But still, Fodor is like, I don't know and then Alma fast forward she begins to every night have these really scary but also kind of sexual and of erotic nature nightmares where a vampire is attacking her puncturing her killing her and oh. she's aware that she's now dead and when this happens she actually on her arm physically in real life outside of her dream puncture marks will appear on her arm as if she truly was oh my gosh isn't the that- impaler maybe i don't know but whatever she's tapped into in terms of the paranormal world's ability to touch her to communicate with her to influence her it's i feel like the gates are just fully open at this point my
1: question is and i don't know if you have the answer but was she always open to the paranormal or
2: did the appearance of this poltergeist somehow open her up I do not have the answer. And I'm sure if I read uh, Kate Summerscale's book, I would have the answer mm. because it's an entire novel yeah. instead of just my, you know, eight pages of research. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I don't know when it first began. I don't know how long it was happening before she called the newspaper. Jeez. I don't really know any of that. But a lot of people believe that the story was to be, you know, a bit sensational, including Fodor, even though he, I think, went to crazy extremes in order to prove it to be a hoax. Which in the end wasn't really proven to be a hoax, right? And he begins to think actually that Alma's just a super creative woman, and she's playing to her audience, and she's just drawing on popular paranormal events during the age of spiritualism. She's attempting to make a name for herself. You know, he thinks she's just a an ordinary woman with an ordinary life. She's a housewife, and she doesn't want to be that. She wants to establish herself as someone more than who she is. And so then he also starts to believe that she's suffering mentally. And that she's displacing sexual abuse from her childhood that never – she never said anything. He's just making this up. Displacing sexual abuse from her childhood, a regressed memory, into a possession to then deal with this buried trauma. And based on what I just told you, it probably won't surprise you when I tell you that he consulted Sigmund Freud on
1: this case. Oh, I was going to say, I feel like that's a very advanced – psychological um analysis for the 30s but yes
2: yeah but then also freud was always sex and parents with him yeah so and that makes sense based on on Fodor's case that that freud would have something to do with this yes so Fodor attempted to treat alma through hypnotism through word association and dream interpretation and in the end alma was studied from february through july So not a ton of time, but also a lot for how much was happening to her and likely the constant day-to-day observation of people coming into her home and bringing her places. Jeez. So because of this case and because of Fodor's troubling methods, his colleagues actually condemn him. They confiscate his papers and they expel him from the International Institute. Good. Alma, and this is where I'm a little confused as to what exactly happened with the poltergeist in the end. Because all I know now is that Alma eventually moves to Branscombe with her family, but she regularly returns to the Croydon area, the borough where she grew up, the Thornton Heath town, and the poltergeist may or may not live on. I do not know if it followed Alma. I do not know how it stopped. But what I do know is that in that same town, in Thornton Heath, in the 1970s, so fast forward 40 years, another poltergeist plagued a family in Thornton Heath. So I read a little bit about that one, and I won't go into all the details, but there's a lot of similarities, which I think poltergeists tend to have with one another, and that's why they're characterized as a poltergeist. But it does make me wonder if... Uh, It just went dormant for a few decades and then ended up cozying up to this new family. Yeah. So we don't really know for certain what happened or how it happened, but I just hope that Alma eventually had some relief from her torment and that she was able to enjoy the rest of her life poltergeist-free. I
1: hope so, too. See, this is, again, what is so bewildering about these types of topics is there is no explanation or answer as to what or why or how or when. And it's just like it's so confusing and there's no answer to what the entity is or what it wanted and why it came when it did. Mm -hmm. Whereas at least with like some demonic stories or exorcisms, we have somewhat of an explanation or like at
2: least you know what it wants. Right. Right. It's a little more clear with his actions, but this is just escalating exponentially. Yeah. It's all over the place. It's like entertaining people with slapstick comedy. Right. And then other times threatening people's lives. And then (laughs) Alma suddenly takes on her own sort of. It's spiritual growth on the other side and it's yeah. contacting people from the other side. She suddenly has this, like, spirit guide speaking through her. But then at the same time, the poltergeist is also taking her over at some point. It's just – yeah, I can't really – it's, like, everything all at once smushed into one person. Right. In one haunting. And it's so confusing because it's, like, this poltergeist, yes, it totally
1: took over Alma's life. But they're – in my mind, there's a version of this where it isn't demonic. It is just a an entity, a spirit, that is overactive and wants attention, and then got angry when people were like mistreating it. And Alma, I mean, because truly the the evil in this story is what's his name and the investigators. Yeah, photo. The investigators
2: and humans who treated Alma like an object. True. True. And really, the only time that anyone was physically injured was Alma after being accused of faking it and then all of the welts on her body and the bleeding. But that was in response also to people touching her. It was like, if you touch her, you will injure her. It was – did you ever see that movie Mother
1: Yes. Oh, my God. That one's so, oh, so, so, so it scary. Was,
2: <gasps> it's so that dark. was really dark. Oh, God. There are some scenes that I'll never forget. They're yeah. burned into my I, brain. That was not at all what I thought that movie was going to be. Me neither. I think that's why it's so shocking. But it reminds me of that, you know, when everyone yeah. is – like, people are attacking in Mother. It's supposed to be, like, right. symbolic of Mother Earth. Like, we're just – parasites and we take 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 until we eventually kill her yeah and it just reminds me of the scene where everyone's you know like grabbing at her grabbing at her and she's dying and i feel like that's a physical representation of what was happening to alma it was like if you touch her if you keep abusing her she will just crumble into scraps of meat because that's how you're treating her it is
1: curious too because it's like Based on the fact that Alma proved she was able to connect to the paranormal and, like, the spiritual world and other spirits were able to, like, come through her, I am curious if her dreams, the ones where she was, like, being pierced by a vampire or or whatever, like, the ones where she was waking up with those wounds after her dream, like – was that the poltergeist, or was it because she was open to the paranormal, some other darker entity came in and connected with her? You know, like it's hard to distinguish. It sounds like she was being berated by the human world as well as the supernatural paranormal world at the same time. Right.
2: And then it, it sort of begs the question are vampires actually of flesh and blood, or did we misidentify them? Like some speculate we misidentified Bigfoot. <laughs> of course, you bring it back to Bigfoot. Oh, Bigfoot. <laughs> and are they actually a possible interdimensional creature what if (laughs) vampires are actually what if they live in your dreams what if they live in the Mm. astral plane and sometimes they can appear and you think you're experiencing something of the physical world but you're not interesting there's nothing scarier to me than the thought of essentially like losing my mind and not being able to trust my own thoughts and experiences which is why horse girl probably really got you did did and anytime we talk about other dimensions or glitches or simulations, I'm just like, my God, <laughs> could all be fake. It could all be fake. We, it really could be. Yeah. Now we get to hear about the poltergeist that gave you nightmares all week long. Yes. This is the story of
1: Britain's longest and most terrifying and still unsolved hauntings that instilled fear in many and led an innocent woman to flee and live decades in fear of this thing, in quotations. Returning, Ooh. It is the story of Sally Hitchings and the Battersea Poltergeist. The story begins at 63 Wycliffe Road in Battersea, southwest London, in 1956. And during that time, the area was mostly working-class families, and one such family resided at 63 Wycliffe Road, the Hitchings. The Hitching family was much like any other family, living a very quaint life, making minimum wages, and just, you know... Trying to go about their life without any problems. Mm -hmm. Wally Hitchings was the patriarch of the family who drove trains for the London Underground. And his wife, Kitty, was a former office clerk who'd unfortunately been bound to a wheelchair when her chronic arthritis made it unbearable to walk on her own. And they shared the home with Wally's mother, Ethel who they called Old Mother Hitchings, and apparently she was, like, a force to be reckoned with. She had her opinions and was very strong about them and would act often before thinking. She seems like a fun character, or was a fun character. She is no longer with us, but (laughs) she sounds wonderful. Um, And they lived also with Ethel's adopted son, John, and then Wally and Kitty had a daughter named Shirley. The Hitchings had lived through the Blitz, which was, you know, during the Second World War. So they were familiar with the horrific sounds and terrors that came along with the bombings that happened during the Second World War in London. Mm -hmm. And bombs were being dropped night after night. And they knew fear. Or so they thought. Uh In my most dramatic voice.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Too bad we don't have background music. Just a, a tiny little fiddle plays in the background. As you say, and so we thought. Or so They thought.
1: And then it's like this like really swelling music and a long pause and then we come back as the music dies out. Yes.
2: And if it were on video, it would zoom out and you'd see that there was actually just a cicada playing the music in the corner. (laughs) Jiminy Cricket. (laughs) Okay. So January
1: 27th, 1956. Shirley Hitchings was 15 years old at the time and she had just started a job as a seamstress at the Selfridges department store and she was at the beginning of her life and adulthood and entering young womanhood. But on the seemingly ordinary day, everything changed with the appearance of a key. So on January 27th of 1956, Shirley walked into her bedroom to find a antique silver key sitting on her pillow. It was very old, posh looking, and it seemed out of place in her bedroom. So she brought the key to her parents and was like, do you guys know what this is? but neither kitty or wally knew what it was and wally told shirley to put it on the mantle and he would examine it later but when later came and he went to the mantle to find the key the key was missing so he goes to shirley and is like hey where is that key and shirley's like i left it on the mantle and wally's like well it's not there and moments go by and guess where the key is back on shirley's pillow ooh and Wally was like, Shirley, you probably just, like, thought you put it back on the mantle. You know, she's a 15-year-old girl. Wally's like, ah, eh, you know, you're my daughter. You're probably just, like, thinking of other things, like, boys, and you forgot about it. And Shirley was like, no, I swear, I put it on the mantle, just as you had asked. But Wally just waves her off and, you know, takes the key and starts trying every single door and every drawer in the house. He goes from the kitchen to the bedrooms all the way to the attic, but to no avail. It does not fit any door or any drawer. The key just simply does not belong in their home. And they were prepared to let it go and forget about the key. And so they kind of like, you know, leave it out in the kitchen or wherever. You know, they they kind of just like forget about it. Until that night, because they fell asleep like any other night. They were dreaming sweet nothings. Until... 2 a.m., when there began to be horrendous sounds loud banging, knocking, scratching. It was emanating throughout the entire house. The floorboards shook, the ceilings quivered. The family woke up terrified and they truly thought that there were bombs being dropped again from the sky. Oh my. And I mean, after living through the trauma of the Blitz, you know, of course that's their first instinct, but then they slowly realize it's coming only from their home. And the house itself was shaking. And there's a quote from Shirley saying it felt like it was coming from the roots of the house. So they ran through the house. They're trying to find one another. They're screaming. And, like, it's chaos. They're looking for a logical explanation. Like, is the cat locked somewhere? And the cat was right with them. They were like, are the neighbors doing something? But it's 2 a.m. And no, the neighbors are not doing anything. And it's coming just from their house. And then Wally and John, who was 20 at the time, John's the, um, Ethel's uh, adopted son decide to go check out the attic because they think they hear knocking coming from the attic. So Shirley, Ethel, and Kitty huddle together in fear as John and Wally go upstairs to the attic and they creep upstairs, but find nothing. And while they find nothing, the banging is continuing and it's like, they'll go up to the attic. And then it sounds like the banging is coming from downstairs. So they like run back downstairs and then it sounds like it's in the attic. So they run back up to the attic and it's just complete chaos. And noise and, like, intense sounds that they just can't
2: explain. And also so frustrating to constantly feel like you're chasing the noise and you're so close and then it being far away again. And moving, yeah. It's just
1: completely bewildering. So as they're up in the attic for, like, the third time, the doorbell rings and Shirley and Ethel open the door to find their neighbors, then, like both the neighbors from either side of the hutchings stormed over to 63 Wycliffe Road in their slippers and robes, groggy with sleep and furious that they were awoken. And they were like, What are you doing? Are you moving furniture? Are you banging? Like, are you hanging things? Like, it's two in the morning.
2: So imagine this. It's so loud that it woke up the neighbors. That loud. And also it just proves that it's it's happening beyond just the family experience. Yeah. Yeah. So the
1: neighbors realized that the Hutchings, in
2: fact, were not banging on the walls, but the noise was
1: continuing and no one could find the source. So they were like, we have to call the police. But by the time that the police arrived, all the noises had stopped. And that silver key, which they all now were suspicious of, had disappeared. It was gone. They had left it in the kitchen. It was nowhere to be found. It was not back on Shirley's pillow. It was not on the mantle. It had just poof,
2: disappeared. This is one of those things where I feel like even if someone had worn it, on a chain around their neck, suddenly they'd look down and there'd be no break, no evidence of it being gone, but it would just be vanished. It would just be gone. Yes. Yes.
1: So of course the police are like, you're all crazy and think the Hutchings made it all up or, you know, we're all like in some hysteric state of mind because there's no key. They're going on about this like antique crazy key that doesn't fit anywhere in their house. Then they're like, and now there's banging and they're there and it's silent. And they're just like, what is, who are you? What's going on? So they don't they don't believe the Hutchings, but the police go back to their police places and (laughs) and wherever the police live, the police homes or the police station, wherever the police places and the Hutchings try to go back to bed and they do. They go back to bed and they try to forget about what happened. But again, the next night, the same thing happens. The noise continues and it continues for two weeks. Every single night, the same thing, banging, shaking, rattling. The sounds were keeping the family awake and was instilling fear in them, obviously. They tried calling the police again, but every time they came, the noises would stop and the police would give them, you know, a big cynical side eye filled with doubt and judgment. And truly, in one of the police records, it, they wrote, I think the whole house has had a bit too much cocoa. Like, they just thought they were nuts. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Which, to be fair, I mean, you keep getting called to a house and that is reporting, banging, scratching, knocking, rattling, and you show up and there's nothing? Like,
2: it, it feels a little bit like the boy who cried wolf, right? Yeah, but it's the whole – it's it's everybody in the home. It's not a new home to them. It's not like they're getting used to the house settling and those strange noises. And then at the same time, if anything, I'd be like, is there someone living in the walls? Are there raccoons? Like – Just go investigate a little bit. Just a little bit of effort. I mean, I think they did. They definitely walked through the house
1: and did what they were supposed to do, but like every time they showed up, the noise had stopped. Mm -hmm. Which is just again like as I was saying about demonic entities or poltergeists or or dark entities. It's like it's truly isolating the family and their targets, their victims, to make them feel like they're alone and don't have support from anyone else. So it, you know, gives the thing, the entity more power over them. So now, more alone and unsettled and helpless than ever, the sounds evolved. So the banging, knocking, and shaking evolved, well, it continued, and then scratching began. One evening, Shirley awoke to the knocking, as she did every night, but this time she heard a faint scratching coming from behind her headboard, like something was trying to claw its way into her bed and into their house. You're sitting on your bed right now, Corinne. Imagine
2: waking up and hearing right behind your ear like a Where do you even go at that point? You just want to melt into (sighs) your bed.
1: Yeah. Horrifying. Things continued to escalate and become more physical. Pots and pans started to fall from the stovetop. And then with time, they began to hover midair and soon after that began to fly across the room as if thrown with violent force by some unseen thing or entity or no one knew – they had no explanation for it. Right. But they constantly had to dodge out of the way of hurtling objects and had no way of knowing when something would be thrown, why it was being thrown, who was doing it, what was doing it. They were just like living in a state of chaos and it sounds very similar to Alma. Like for a really long time, they were just living with this.
2: Yeah. And you don't know if the cup in your hands is, is going to be the thing that smacks you in the face yeah. or if you're going to just live normally for a few minutes.
1: Yeah. So as they call a poltergeist a noisy spirit, the house just became so noisy day and night. It was like this entity had taken over the house. It reminds me of Monster House. Oh, yeah. Like it came alive. Ooh. Or also, like Smart House when the robot gets
2: jealous and starts to go crazy. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I actually almost watched it the other day because I really wanted to watch a Disney Channel original movie. Oh. But Xenon won. <gasps> Ugh. Zetus Lapidus. I need to watch that again. So good. Love Xenon. It still holds up,
1: man. It still holds up. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, to the Hutchings, they were like, this thing is inside the walls trying to get into our lives, into our minds. And it was relentless and utterly horrifying. At one point, the family was sitting together, as they did many evenings, when Kitty's favorite clock just, like, lifted up off the mantelpiece, floated across the room, and landed on the dining room table where they were all sitting, like, very gently. And so they're all like, Okay. At least it didn't break, but this is very disturbing. And also a little bit
2: I, – I feel like that right there proves that it's not just this quick burst of energy that, that manipulates something. It can be really thoughtful and yeah. intentional and have a prolonged period of contact that's yes. entirely in its control. Multiple guests of the
1: household witnessed bedsheets being torn off the bed, slippers walking around the house on their own, chairs and furniture moving around the house – And the haunting became more violent and more destructive. Rooms were destroyed and trashed. And they described the home as looking like a war zone. Like they would clean up and then they'd come back into that room and everything would just be like thrown around. Then there was also writings on the wall. The family would enter rooms to find massive letters scribbled into messages on their walls. So there are some photos online. Like there's one wall that this massive lettering Writes out, viva la France, like, viva la France, long live France. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, crazy, massive lettering. Like, as if something, like, took a nail, like, a massive nail and, like, scr- scratched it into
2: the wall. And, and is this a French poltergeist? I'm it confused. might be. I don't know. Because we're in the UK right now, are we not? Yeah, we're in we're in London. <laughs> So,
1: it's so weird. So, there's so much happening and there's so much confusion, but Shirley and her mother were convinced that the spirit was trying to enter the home, or perhaps he already had. And they decided to give him a name because they were like, if we give him a name, maybe it would make him less scary to us. So, they felt that the spirit had a masculine presence and it was definitely male. So, they gave him the name Donald. And after about two weeks living, with this nightmare and living with Donald, the Hutchings reached out to a medium in hopes that he would help perform an exorcism of the spirit in the home and help send it or whatever it was into the light. Mm-hmm. So this exorcist or medium comes over to perform the exorcism. And in the middle of it, Donald began to react extremely violently. And there's this, like, one anecdote that I'm not sure the timeline of when it happened, but I believe it happened during the exorcism. But basically, it was said that Ethel, the grandmother, thought that Donald was an evil spirit, so during the exorcism... With help, Like, trying to help and threw holy water on Shirley in an attempt to rid the home and Shirley of the spirit because it had been, like, primarily uh, attacking Shirley. And it did not work. Instead, Donald went berserk. The crucifix went flying across the room. The curtains were torn apart as if someone took a knife to them. And it just turned into chaos inside the house, and whatever was happening echoed beyond the walls and was terrifying neighbors and, like, people on the street to the point where many people called the police, afraid that the devil was being summoned inside 63 Wycliffe Road. So amidst this exorcism, the police come knocking on the door. So they interrupted it, which, of course, made it unsuccessful. And this led Lieutenant Marcus Lipton to raise the matter in Parliament in 1956 because he was like, we need to give an apology to this family and the police need to apologize because they interrupted this exorcism, which was the first time like exorcisms or paranormal things were brought up in Parliament. So it's like a very interesting, it's interesting historically in that regard yeah definitely but unapologetic the minister told lipton black magic is an offense in common law so when the issue was raised in the commons it caused a storm and soon almost everybody in britain had a view on the existence or otherwise of the
2: battersea poltergeist also i'm sorry black magic black magic was this not done by like a priest it was a medium oh so they believe and, – and because – So the one difference is their job title.
1: I guess, and I also don't know enough historically about, like, the view of the paranormal and spiritualism and all of that at this time.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I just assumed that the UK was all sort of Catholic or Protestants. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I mean, it just – it sounds like multiple people – misinterpreted what was happening inside the home as, like, a ritual to call upon Satan. Because, like, uh-huh. I think a lot of people who called the police were like, it sounds like the devil was being called upon.
2: No, it was being expelled. It was trying and you to be expelled. just interrupted it. And now it will live forever as your neighbor until it crawls <laughs> over to you. Crawls in through the back headboard of your bed. Ugh. Can you imagine just seeing – I'm envisioning it, like, if – on the surface of the earth just creating this little bump in the grass and you just see like a gopher going through and it comes into your home
1: and it kind of like bubbles up a little bit
2: yeah disturbing
1: very so this becomes a massive story in london and almost worldwide like everyone knows about it because it was mentioned in parliament it was you know in the commons so It became public, and that is when Harold Chibbett came into the picture. Harold was a tax inspector by day and a paranormal investigator by night. He would camp out in kitchens and living rooms of people's houses to try to make contact to the other side. He served in the First World War and had seen a lot of his close friends die kind of before his eyes, which people believe led to his deep desire to connect to the supernatural world to kind of confirm in himself that there was something more on the other side because he had seen so much trauma and tragedy. And it's really sad because he kind of disappeared in the history book. So I want to give him his credit where it's due because he spent 12 years of his life trying to get answers of the Battersea Poltergeist. Wow. And fun fact, he was like buddies with Sherlock Holmes Or, no, sorry, with the not Sherlock Holmes is a fake character. Um, (laughs) Oh, well, I still gasped. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) I can't believe I said that. No, he was friends with the creator of Sherlock Holmes.
2: Still, so that's the so essentially Sherlock Holmes because that character came from within the author.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just like the poltergeist in your story was Theodore Geisel, who was still alive at the time. Uh, and he was also friends with um the notorious black magician Alistair Crawley, which I believe you did an episode on. Yep. Yes. So when he'd heard of the Battersea Poltergeist, he was like, I want to help. So he met with the Hutchings family and offered to help them free of charge. And based on Harold's years of studying the paranormal, he believed that there were two phases of poltergeist hauntings. And the first was what the Hutchings were currently experiencing, which was the spirit was trying to test the family and push them into isolation and fear, which the poltergeist seemed to have achieved and accomplished. So Harold was afraid that Donald, as the Hutchings had named this poltergeist, had accomplished this, and it signaled to him that the second phase was upon them which meant to him that the hauntings were about to get worse. Mm. So Harold spent the next 12 years with Shirley and the Hutchings family, desperate to help them and help this noisy poltergeist spirit move on. He basically, like, moved into the Hutchings kitchen and began to communicate with Donald. I mean, he was married at this time, and he basically told his wife, like, I won't be home a lot. I'm going to live at this house. And he did not realize it would be a 12-year-long adventure. Wow. They once made contact with the entity and asked if they could call him Donald because Harold just wanted to make sure they weren't angering him by calling him that. And they were communicating with Donald by knocking. And so it was like the one knock for yes, two for no, or, you know, I don't know what specifics they used. But basically they got permission from Donald that he liked the name Donald and he was, like, excited about it. Interesting. So they continued to call him Donald from there on out, and Donald also agreed to communicate through writing. But apparently Donald was, like, very specific and, like, didn't want a pen. And, like, Harold gave a few different, you know, writing utensils, and Donald didn't want any of them. He wanted a quill, which could be an indicator towards who Donald was in a past life. Maybe he only used quills when he was living. Right, so they started communicating with Donald through writings, and there was one letter left, which is super ominous and terrifying. They, like, came back into a room, and the letter wrote, Shirley, comma, I come. Like, it was coming for Shirley.
2: Ooh, that's so creepy. Ew, that's so creepy. And you know what's even more disturbing is just the f- the the fact that he might have written with a quill in his real life and his his love or attachment – to the name donald i just like to think of poltergeist as entities that never lived a human life and don't have any of the same qualities of potential empathy or yeah. concern for others and yet this very much sounds like ugh, i don't know the whole thing is just disturbing me and it gets even wilder
1: so the hauntings often seem directed towards or around shirley and despite harold's firm belief that this was a paranormal encounter a lot of people were doubting the hutchings and believed they were making it all up. Even John Shirley's adopted kind of brother thought that Shirley was responsible for the so-called hauntings. Like he believed that Shirley was somehow manipulating the house to like make pots and pans and clocks and everything fly and shake. And and again, it goes back to like people just wanting to find some explanation for something that they mm-hmm. can't understand. And he was like, Shirley's an only child, and apparently she did like like attention, and she you know she was spoiled because she was the only child um, of Wally and Kitty. And John also was like, "She's also the only one or the first one to hear all the noises and like wake up first, so he was just like, "I don't believe Shirley and and a lot of other people didn't believe Shirley, and they were pointing the finger at her and blaming her for all the activity. Well, all of John's cynicism changed one evening when he heard Shirley screaming from her bedroom, so John and Wally run to her and find the bed sheets physically being ripped off of the bed. And John, mm-hmm. like, in that moment, like, instead of, like, running to her, like, being, like, oh, my God, Maria, are you okay? John goes, put your hands in the air, because he wanted to make sure that she wasn't doing it somehow. So Shirley moves her hands, like, lifts them above her head, and sure enough, she's not doing anything, because the sheets continue to fly off of her when her hands are clearly up not doing anything. Yeah. And then, as a to really, you know, put the pin on it and make sure that John knew it was not Shirley who was responsible... All of a sudden, Shirley's body begins to hover and lift off of the bed. She floats one inch, one foot, two oh. feet, three feet, six feet above the bed, right before John and
2: Wally's eyes. Oh, at that point, what do you even do? The person that you love are supposed to love the most in this world is being attacked by something, but I assume everything in your body is also like, run, run away, run away. And also just shock, like especially John, who you
1: know, for so long was like, Oh, Shirley's for sure doing this, like not really taking it that seriously. To then see her hover, like straight up out of the exorcist, yeah. like it's terrifying.
2: Imagine the guilt he felt after that, too, of just not believing that. <laughs> and then learning that she's being truly physically attacked, yes, and he was not her supporter or protector, yes.
1: So from that moment on, John and the rest of the Hutchings were convinced that Shirley was innocent in all of this and that there was, in fact, a spirit haunting their home. And whatever it was, wanted Shirley. And poor 15-year-old Shirley was, like, traumatized. She's like, this is the end of my life. I'm going to die. And she had just turned 15. She was so excited, and this was supposed to be the start of her life, and her independence was just at her fingertips. And she has recently said that her life is split up into, like, three chapters there was before Donald and then there was after and during Donald she thought she was going to die and thought she was going mad kind of like what you were saying like not being able to trust your reality right and she said during the Donald phase of her life she just existed but did not live and when the story got out and like leaked that Shirley was the target of the Battersea poltergeist she was fired from her job her friends began to pull away they were like afraid of Shirley and also like kind of didn't Believe her. And according to one report, Donald, before Shirley was fired from her job, he followed Shirley to work and would steal scissors from the workspace, which was another reason she was fired. And Donald clearly wanted to exile from all respects of her life, which he succeeded at. She also tried to date and Donald would scare men away if she brought them to the house. And so, like, one boyfriend taunted Donald, saying, like, do your worst, and Donald threw a bowl of nuts at his head, and the guy, like, took off, sprinted out of the house, and Shirley never saw him again. <laughs> That's really sad. Harold Chibbett, who was the paranormal investigator who came to live with the family, would communicate with Donald and Shirley frequently, trying to get answers, and after time, the family got used to Donald and kind of accepted him as one of the family but it was like a weird Stockholm syndromey thing because while they like, grew used to him, they were also like very terrified of him. And there's also like Kitty started viewing him almost like as a son. Oh. It got like really psychologically twisted. And Shirley even has like recalled saying that the atmosphere in the house was like extremely thick and dense with something dark. And wherever they went in the home, it felt like someone was watching and they were never alone. So, like, one day Shirley would feel like Donald was being playful. He would wear her dad Wally's slippers around the house and, like, run around and, like, Shirley would chase him. But then she could say something or do, like, step somewhere wrong and he would just snap and turn. (sighs) Donald began setting fires throughout the house. Donald once set all the tea towels on top of the electric cooker – And they all caught fire. Another time, he set fire to Kitty's double bed. And when Wally ran to put out the flames on the bed, a pair of invisible hands pushed him into the fire. Fortunately, he was able to escape with injury only to his one arm. And the fire brigade was called in and the fire was put out so the home was safe. But Wally was taken to the hospital for his wounds and he was cleaned up. And they took photographs of his arm. And when they looked back at the photographs, they were shocked to find... That amidst the burn marks, there were claw marks, three claw marks, as if he had been clawed by a wild animal, gouged deeply into his arm. Oh, my gosh. And these hauntings continued for
2: years, for 12 years. That's so long. 12 years. I don't think I've heard of a haunting lasting that long before. I know. Like like something of this level.
1: It's absurd. And 10 years after the haunting. So it was basically like the haunting continued for 12 years, but at year 10... Shirley had actually married a man named Derek and so they were like, we're going to move out. We're not going to live here anymore. And they moved to Bognor Regis where they started their own family. But Donald followed them and the hauntings continued. And even if Shirley went days or weeks without talking to her parents, she would know what they were up to and they would know what Shirley and Derek were up to because Donald started leaving messages and letters around their respective homes telling them what the others were doing. So like, Donald would write a letter at Wally and Kitty's place detailing in, like, very extensive detail everything that Shirley and Derek were doing, and then vice versa. Shirley and Derek would find messages of, like, what Wally and Kitty were doing. And Shirley was like – it felt like Donald was snitching on her. Yeah, it's totally tattletaling. Like a younger sibling. So, I mean, I, I understand why they kind of felt like this parental or sibling relationship with it. I mean, you live with it for 10 years, like – That that
2: becomes your life. Because his name is Donald or its name is Donald, it keeps tripping me up and I keep being like, wait, is this the poltergeist or is this – A human. A a
1: human. (laughs) Well, it became almost human to them because it was just a constant in their lives. So this continued, like I said, for 12 years. And then in 1968, Donald, the poltergeist – Left a message at 63 Whitecliff Road for Wally and Kitty, and the message simply said, "My work is done. Goodbye." And with that, Donald disappeared just as mysteriously as he had appeared, and no one, still to this day, knows why he came, why he stayed, what, what he wanted, or why he left.
2: He stayed for so long—twelve years—and to then just say his work is done. What, what work? work? What work? What work? There was no conclusion. No. And
1: apparently Kitty was so distraught when he left because, like I said, she kind of started to view him as a son that she went into mourning after he left. Like, started wearing all black. Like, really mourned his disappearance. You're right. It really is, yeah, like Stockholm Syndrome. So to this day, the mystery remains. And 63 Wycliffe Road was demolished in the late 1960s. And this haunted house no longer exists, which is probably for the best. But it is now 2021 and Shirley is now 80 and she is the last living victim of the Battersea Poltergeist. And she kept quiet about her experiences for the better portion of her life until recently when a journalist by the name of Danny Robbins convinced her to open up about it for his docudrama podcast. So there is an entire podcast series called the Battersea Poltergeist and I highly, highly recommend it. It's delightful. And it's a mix of interviews with Shirley and it's like the first time that she's ever talking about it and a written drama dramatized version of like what happened back in 19 in 1956 through 1968 and it's interviews with a skeptic and a believer trying to find some type of reason for the Battersea poltergeist and like what it was and what happened and why. What did you say this is on? It's. Called the Battersea Poltergeist. It's a it's a podcast. Oh, okay. But the rights for it was just acquired by Blumhouse TV and is being turned into an scripted slash unscripted series. So that's going to be coming out someday. But it's so fascinating and really really interesting. I think it's like eight episodes, so it's not terribly long. And Shirley was like truly really hesitant to talk about it at first because even though Donald disappeared, and that was you know how many years ago? I can't math. It was, you know, a really long time ago. She still lived in fear that he would return at any second. Or, and then she had two children, a boy and a girl, and she spent a lot of their childhood worried that the second they turned 15, Donald would arrive and plague them as well, the same way that he had her. Oh. Yeah, like thinking it's something you age into and age out of. Luckily, that did not happen. And so Shirley was just still nervous about talking about Donald because she was worried that if she did, it would bring him back. But her story is back in the zeitgeist. She's also written a book with the help of Harold's detailed notes from the 12 Years Together. It's called The Poltergeist Prince of London, The Remarkable True Story of the Battersea Poltergeist. And she uses, like, Harold had boxes of notes, of recordings, of letters written by Donald, all of this stuff that she is like, used to write this book, which – I truly want to read. But yeah, it's been sixty-five years since Donald first appeared. I did the math already. I did see, I, I prepared. I did it for myself ahead of time. <laughs> it was sixty five years since Donald first appeared and fifty three years since he disappeared. But this haunting continues to be a mystery, and no one knows why, how, or what Donald was and why he haunted Shirley and the Hutchings family.
2: Yeah, the haunting is so confusing, right? Because it is very poltergeisty, but then at the same time, you're right, it it takes this weird familial turn, like weird roommate. I don't know. And it makes me almost think of Monsters, Inc., (laughs) where it's like, you know, they're in training, they go to Monsters (laughs) University. Did he just graduate? Like, I'm confused. Why did he, why did he, did he level up? I don't. Is there something that they did that accidentally triggered him for a certain amount of But the years? key. And then the, the key is the
1: whole other thing. Like, that appeared. And then yes. all of a sudden, the hauntings began. So it's like, where did that key come from? What is it? And, like, why did it disappear? Like, who put it there? Like, it almost makes me think of, well, and you haven't seen it, but in The Conjuring 3, they there's, like, this ritualistic thing left under the house, which, like, s- sets it all off. And it's, Mm. like, was there someone who, like, snuck into the Hutchings house and, like, left this key and, like, it was cursed and, like, that's why Donald appeared? Or, like, I don't know, the fact that Donald was so fixated on Shirley, are they connected from a past life? Right. And Donald, after the 12 years of haunting the family, like, his work was done and he was ready to move on to another life. Like, was he about to be reincarnated?
2: Yeah, I don't know. what if? Oh my gosh.
1: Okay. What if? If we're going along with that theory that I just said that it was brilliant. Thank you, Sabrina. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What if? I'm curious when Shirley and her husband got pregnant with their first child and what the lining up of Donald's disappearance was because what if Donald disappeared when Shirley got pregnant because it was like Donald's about to be reincarnated as Shirley's child and all he's wanted to do this whole, the last 12 years was be back in her life because they're traveling
2: souls. Wow. Maybe. Or on the darker side, what if he, what if he was a recovering poltergeist? Recovering. And basically he, he was given the option, if he was able to do 12 years or 13 years or ho- however long it was, if he was able to prove himself that he would be able to handle it on earth, then. He could live a life on Earth, but he had to prove it first. He had to live with a family. He had to be prove himself good enough for a chance at a human life. That kind of feels like the opposite of a recovering poltergeist, right? It's like
1: he could have been worse. Yes, that's <laughs> true. I don't know. The claw marks on her father in the fire is really scary.
2: Yeah, that's so disturbing. And it's even her yes, her hovering off the bed and what I feel like that's just the fact that you brought those up makes it even more disturbing the fact that she was so emotional over and like protective and maternal over the spirit because the amount of da- and again, Stockholm syndrome, mm-hmm. but the amount of damage and the the horror that came with this poltergeist being in the house and the unpredictability of its actions. Yeah you would think that it would just be constant terror but it must be a way to cope with because li- the thing didn't leave yeah so
1: and like the only way to I guess like yeah if you're if you're stuck living with something like that you almost trick yourself into befriending it or bringing it as, into the, like as a member of the family because like it
2: makes you feel less psychologically less afraid if you accept it right It almost – to call upon another scary movie. Did you ever watch Mama? Yes. Is that the German one or Swedish? No. I want to watch that one. This one's different. Do they both have the same name? Maybe. This one is the one where basically two little girls – the opening scene are two little girls and I think their dad go – they're hiking or something. Anyway, they enter this cabin and the dad is then – Presumably murdered by whatever is in this cabin. And then fast forward a couple years or however long and these children are recovered. But they act really bizarrely and it turns out that there was this sort of like maternal poltergeist ish creature that was taking care of them and had followed them when they were taken and recovered by like CPS or whatever. So it's really interesting because it was, yeah, it's like this thing that you should be absolutely terrified of, but the children adapted to be able to survive with what they were given in this scenario. Jeez, And yeah, I mean, it was creepy. What, What was it called? I think you're right. It's Mama. And then Goodnight Mommy is the one that I was thinking of good night mommy that's the one with the face coverings uh-huh. and the twins i need to watch that one my brother watched it a long time ago and told me it's to watch it dark it like
1: that's another movie speaking of like mother like it all all the mama movies it, it takes a very dark turn that i was not expecting at all
2: yeah mother mama and what is it mommy uh good night mommy good night mommy mama and mother are all very dark it's so dark <laughs>
1: And I can't wait for the Battersea Poltergeist to be made into a show because it sounds right up my alley and sounds so interesting.
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: What do you have for a listener story? Okay, this is called Mixed Tape Mystery Man. I want to hurt her sibling rivalry taken to the next level oh there's just so much but it's from the uk and both of our poltergeist reports were from the uk as well so as many of them are here we go yes okay this listener's name is spelled c-e-r-i is that Sari? Sari? carrie oh i don't know so i apologize if i'm not saying your name correctly but i'm going to say uh Sari. So this is from Sari. Hey, ghostesses. After listening to days worth of your show, I decided to finally take the time to write down the creepy thing that happened to my family when I was about eight and my sister Becky was 12. I grew up in North Wales, UK in a very small three bedroom house on the housing estate built not too long before. At the time, my mom was bringing me and my sister up and it was only the three of us girls in the house. There were no men coming into the house, or neighbors within a few houses that were men. This was back in the '90s when the most fun thing you could do was use your karaoke machine and blank tapes to make a radio show with your friends. One day, my sister and her friend Sarah, who was thirteen, unwrapped their brand new blank tape and started recording themselves as being radio DJs in the bedroom <laughs> that my sister and I shared. I was not invited to play radio DJ as I was too young and annoying for them to play with. I get it. I was the I was that I was that oh. sister. My mom called up to both of them to tell them that tea was ready, so they came downstairs, accidentally leaving the machine recording. When we went back up after tea, they rewound the tape to listen to their radio show. They heard themselves presenting their make-believe show, and then them answering my mom about tea. Then there was background noise as they got up and left. The fuzzy nothing of a tape recording... The empty bedroom was broken by a slow, deep, and croaky voice that unmistakably belonged to a man. They clearly heard it say, She wears a Man United shirt, and when she smiles, it makes me want to hurt her. (gasps) Oh, It's worth mentioning at this point that I have always been a very happy child and adult. And at this time, I was a big tomboy who, in that room, every night, slept in my Manchester United football shirt. My sister and her friend were obviously terrified by the strange man's voice on the tape, not knowing where it came from, and after questioning each other if they had done it and realizing that neither of them could have, crying, they rushed downstairs to tell my mom. My mom listened to the tape on the living room stereo and was also so terrified by the unknown man's voice that she immediately rounded all three of us up, me, my sister, and Sarah, and rushed us out of the house across the road to Sarah's house. She played the tape to Sarah's mom, who also lived in a house with just her and her daughters, She also couldn't think of any rational explanation as to what that was or what had happened, but they both agreed that that man was clearly speaking about wanting to hurt me. It's probably worth noting that I didn't actually know about this tape until years later when I was 19 and around Sarah's house. She was 24 at this point and a mother of two. We were in her house just chatting about weird things that happened in the room The night before the room that i used to share with my sister and she said ugh yes well it's like that tape isn't it god that still scares the shit out of me you know and i was confused as i had no idea what she was talking about and she was surprised that i didn't remember and she kept speaking to me as if it must have been so traumatic and it was about me so she told me the story insisting you must remember me and your sister were petrified but i've never heard this story before Which was strange, as by this point, my sister and I were good friends, and my mom had always been very open with us about everything. I did vaguely recall being rushed to Sarah's house once because of a, quote, alien voice on a tape, but that's all I recall. And I think it was likely dismissed by my mom as nothing for me to worry about or an I'll tell you when you're older moment. I was so creeped out by the story Sarah told me that I didn't want to go home and I didn't want to sleep in that room. But I had to as I lived there. When I got home, I said to my mom, what's this about the tape that Sarah and Becky made? And my mom proceeded to tell me the exact same story Sarah had just told me. I called my sister shortly after and I asked her to, and she told me the same story. Their accounts were pretty much identical. And I purposefully didn't say anything leading about the story apart from what's this about a tape as I wanted to see how valid Sarah's version was. I'm also pretty certain that they didn't call each other to a line because they're not pranksters nor liars. Oh my gosh. Neither my mom or my sister needed any extra details about what I was asking as clearly the experience was so significant that they knew exactly what I was talking about by me just mentioning the (gasps) tape. When I asked them why they hadn't told me sooner, they said that it was clearly about me and I was young, so they didn't want to scare me. Even 11 years later, I was bricking it. My mom said that after she took us all out of the house, she was so scared of the tape that she wouldn't bring it back into the house and she gave it to a lady who was spiritual to burn properly in case. Oh my gosh. Even so long after, she sounded pretty shaken up by the thing, and as did my sister. We don't know what the voice was, but there's no chance that there was a man in the house. Like I said, the house was very small, so you would have had to walk through the living room where everyone was to get in and out. My sister and her friend weren't away from the machine for long, and everyone maintains neither of them could have made a voice so deep and so manly. We have later speculated that it may have been some kind of poltergeist born out of my sister's teenage angst (laughs) energy, which was plentiful at the time and often directed at me, particularly. She did not like me back then. Oh my gosh. Oh. I feel ya. Many things have happened in that room before and after. My friends who never knew about the tape or any other strange occurrences would feel like someone had touched them. A boyfriend woke up in the middle of the night to see a heavy wardrobe door open on its own. Long forgotten toys without batteries will go off on their own. My mom and I would wake up thinking that the other was ill as they were pacing the squeaky landing to the loo only to find out in the morning that it was neither of us. And the list goes on. All I can say is I hope that we don't have some kind of paranormal activity scenario going on where I am stalked by something. Ha. But my sister and I do joke about it now. I moved to California, though, so hopefully that's far enough away for me to have lost it. Hope you guys are doing well in these crazy times. Hopefully this will give you a bit of a thrill and a chill while we wait for the world to go back to normal. Thanks, Sari and her beautiful sister and now best friend Becky. And then she said, and all of Becky's cats, of which there are many. (laughs) I want to see Becky's cats. I know.
1: Um, wow. It is interesting the way that Sari said that her family theorized that maybe like a poltergeist or some entity was born out of Becky's like annoyance of her younger sister. Because
2: the way that it was like so specific of like I hate when she smiles. Yeah. I hate when she smiles and she's always wearing that shirt. Yeah. And it makes me so angry. That it does feel like an extension off of – You know how, okay, I only say this because,
1: like, I had such a similar situation. We all joked that my sister was, like, the devil because she was so mean growing up. But I think she might have been possessed, and that's why she was mean. But it is interesting, like, you know how they (laughs) say shadow people are a version of our souls in the afterlife that, like, split off from your normal self. And it's just, like, we all have this darkness inside of us that, like, when we pass on, sometimes it splits off and becomes a shadow person, which – Obviously, mm-hmm. it's not science. There's no fact or there's no <laughs> – there's nothing affirming that that is the true case of it, but it's a theory. So I wonder if that's possible to happen in your youth as well, you know, like something can sprout out yeah. of just a innocent hatred and annoyance.
2: Yeah, because, yeah, like you said, and, and the bell witch cave is coming to mind because – the Bell Witch is supposedly the darkness that split off from the neighbor who hated the, the Bell family from her spirit after she mm-hmm. passed. But in all of those scenarios, it starts with someone passing over and then some darkness splitting off from their soul. But in this case, it would be an amount of energy mustered out of a living person that then goes and creates itself into whatever that energy is. That didn't really make sense what I was saying, but... But neither does this whole situation. Neither does half the paranormal stories we
1: read. Like, there's just so much mystery and and it's frightening. I mean, imagine being a single mother where you just want to protect your children and this recording
2: happens. What if there actually was just a, a spirit just kind of creeping through the home or maybe even passing through the home temporarily in that moment and previously either in her sleep or just not even really thinking about it. Maybe maybe Becky did say those words. Maybe she said it to her friend. Maybe she said it out loud to herself. Maybe she was so annoyed one time that she said it to Sarah and she doesn't remember. And the spirit overheard it and was just, like, mimicking her, just repeating what it heard. Yeah, except the whole passing through
1: thing would mean that it passed through for a long period of time because – It specified she wears a Man United shirt and knew enough that she smiled
2: often. True. Oof! I just got a chill down my spine. Imagine being the parent, a single parent, and this comes up on a tape recorder. It's horrifying. I don't know what's scarier, being in a small home or a large home and thinking that someone might be hiding in. Because a small home, you're close proximity. You're like, someone could whip around the corner and I don't have much space to move. It's like hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. And then in a larger space, it's like people could be- Anywhere. Anywhere. You could turn a corner and be in a room where someone is hidden and not know it. And that's that's also petrifying. Oh, gosh. I'm excited. I've
1: had this story saved for a long time. Ooh. Okay, it is from our listener Kate, and it is called Demonic Encounter, and it starts with a warning. Warning, this story is rather lengthy, but if you like a good, creepy story, you may enjoy it. Hey ladies, I'm Kate. Thanks for taking the time to read my story. I figured the best way to introduce myself would be by telling y'all the most intense paranormal story I have to share. The time that I was haunted by what I believe to be something demonic. I should start by saying I have always been drawn to the occult and the paranormal. I grew up with horror movies and spooky shit since I was a baby, and it's always been a deep interest of mine. But now, on to the actual story. Once upon a time, I was an edgy little 17-year-old who renounced all my faith in God. Shortly after that, very weird shit started to happen to me and around me. The first paranormal instance with this was when I was asleep. I had a dream, in quotes, that I woke up in my bed and my blankets on my bed were being slowly pulled off of me by an unseen entity. I woke up the next morning to find my blankets in a pile at the end of my bed, which could be a coincidence, right? My faith in these being coincidences came to a quick halt after I became very, very sick. I had easily dropped 15 to 20 pounds in two weeks. I had fevers, weakness, rashes on my face, and stiffness all over my body. For a while, I thought I had meningitis or mono, and my nurse at school thought I had scarlet fever. So I went to the doctor and had a wide array of tests done to me, only to come back saying nothing was wrong. They could not find any possible reason why I was so sick. So I continued suffering with this weakening drainage in my body for about a month and a half. Weird shit started happening around me. I was feeling a constant presence around me, but mostly the feeling of the environment made me so uncomfortable. My boyfriend at the time had me talk to his stepfather who was very religious. We prayed and he let me borrow his Bible to read from. And he told me to go home and be firm to claim back the house that was mine. But that didn't go over so well. When I approached my old bedroom, which is where most of the activity happened, I raised this Bible up and tried to muster up the courage to confront this thing. This thing that I could not see but could see me. And I felt the negativity focus in on me as I tried my hardest to say, this is my house and you are not welcome here, etc. The negativity lingered around me and even though nothing really happened that night, I knew for a fact that this thing knew I was spiritually weak and knew I couldn't fight alone. I felt it laughing at me. There was knocking on each of my walls in my room. I had been scratched. The physical violence that this thing was bringing upon me was terrifying. And nobody believed me except for my boyfriend of the time. I would just feel random burning spots on my body, and whenever I would look there, there would be a scratch, sometimes three, you know, mocking the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit— And I think the scariest scratch I got was a little further on my shoulder blade on my back. It was about five to six inches long and welted with this horribly ugly red and purple color. Yet there was no blood. I was freaking the fuck out because in my house I lived with an atheist mother who thought spiritual issues were nonsense and an act for attention. And an older brother who, while religious, did not believe in evil spirits. So I was isolated and alone, which is exactly how a demon wants to have a person. The scariest thing that happened was when this thing tried to burn my mother's house down twice. My mom had one of those candle wax melters, but instead of an electric one, you would use a little candle underneath to melt the wax on the top. And when we just got home from being out, my mom found her wax melted and at least three foot flames. Damn near, if not already, touching the archway of the room it was in. This happened twice. My mom blamed the product and this wax melter was scorched black from top to bottom, yet she still didn't believe it was paranormal, and she had that thing three to four months prior with no issues. She still does not believe me about the house being haunted, which frightens me. I'm always afraid that this thing will come back and hurt her because she doesn't believe in religion, spirituality, or any of it, and she has nothing to protect her. Anyways... I would wake up every night during the witching hours, between 2 and 3 a.m. When I would wake up, I would always feel like I was being watched and even touched on my legs. I'd wrap myself up in my blankets like a mummy, hoping, in a childish thought-like process, that this fabric would protect me from the supernatural being. I would be frozen in fear, daring not to move, let alone breathe hard enough for the thing to notice me. But this thing knew for a fact that I was spiritually weak and was preying on me. When I would wake up, my TV would be either frozen or turned off if I left it on. There were times where I would fall asleep to Nickelodeon or something, and I would wake up at 3 a.m. only for the TV to be frozen on the Catholic channel. That was what I'm assuming to be its way of laughing at me, saying, Haha, you think religious television can keep me away from you? No way. I used to light prayer candles as some sort of comfort, and I woke up to my St. Michael prayer candle in my bed next to me. The creepiest part of that was, Remember how I said I would wrap myself tight like a mummy? That means I had no way to reach out of my bed and grab this thing. The candle was next to me, against my back, and I only knew it was there when I rolled onto it the following morning. I kept that candle on my nightstand at least a good two feet away from my bed. My boyfriend at the time gave me the numbers to one of his friends, we'll call him Liam, who is a psychic and a healer. Liam ended up getting in touch with his godmother, who was a devout shaman, spiritual healer. This woman traveled in the astral realm and got the thing away from me. As soon as she did, the entire environment felt a lot more peaceful. And when I asked her what this thing was, she refused to name it. She said it was an entity far too dark for me to imagine or handle. If there's anything I've learned in my years of dedication to the paranormal and occult, it is that you cannot kill what never had a life or what is already dead. An exorcism helps prevent things from coming back, but you have to hold your end of the bargain to keep them away from you. Until then, some move on to another victim, and some lie dormant until that barrier of protection is broken again. Sometimes I wonder if the entity watches me, waiting for me to let it back. I am now a 24-year-old eclectic witch, and over the years I have learned that I am an empath as well as a magnet for spirits. Great, lol. I am still deeply involved with the paranormal and occult, I share my experiences not only to tell a spooky story, but to help others understand how these beings work and how to protect yourself from such things. I hope you enjoyed my story and I can't wait to tune into the
2: next episode of Two Girls, One Ghost, Kate. You know, it's interesting because Kate, well, this whole thing is absolutely (laughs) terrifying, but Kate's concerned that the entity is going to come back For her mom, because her mom doesn't have any strong spiritual or religious beliefs, and the thought that it would come back to kind of, like, taunt her or mock Mm -hmm. her or challenge her is interesting because with the religious beliefs and artifacts, those things are what were being used to torment Kate. Mm -hmm. You know, the candle being moved to her back, the Catholic channel being... Frozen on the TV. Yeah. It was It, it was like – yeah, it was saying like, oh, even if you believe in religion, it's not going to help you at all. And actually, it might be more fun for me to yeah. torment you now because you think you're having protection. Which makes me think it's a really
1: powerful demon. I'm also so fascinated by this friend's grandmother who astral projected – to get rid yes. of this demon. Like, I need to know who she is. I want to have a full conversation with her. I want to learn her ways. I want her to be my mentor. I And I also
2: really want to know how she deals with it in the astral plane. Yeah. Because what do you do? How do you keep yourself safe? What do you say? What do you do to rid someone else of this? I don't know. I have so many questions. So many.
1: That's why I'm like, let's get this woman on the podcast. Let's give her her own podcast.
2: That's the key right yeah. there. She needs her, her own podcast. <laughs> and I will listen religiously. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the movie Soul, when the shaman has to go into the astral plane to help the lost mm. souls. And then also Insidious, the first one oh, where the dad yeah. has to go into the astral to plane save to help the son. son,
1: Yeah. Oh, gosh. I'm glad that whatever this thing is, he sh- who shall not be named. Is gone and no longer tormenting Kate. But it is mm-hmm. like Kate said, and similar to both of our stories. I mean, and Alma's story feels inc- no one really knows how it ends or wh- what happened to the poltergeist that was haunting Alma. But like with Shirley, similarly, this constant fear of, okay, it's gone now, but will talking about it, will it like what will trigger it to come back? And it's this after however long of being tormented by it even though it's gone it's the the fear of it is always there
2: right and too i feel like any time a strong sickness comes on she might fear yeah. feel the fear of it coming back as well because it started with her being really ill
1: yeah yeah oh the the scratches that she constantly would wake up with is or it would happen like it sounds like it happened kind of in broad daylight she would like randomly feel a burning sensation, and then look at it, and there would be three scratches.
2: Yes. Do you remember the email we read maybe one to two to three encounters episodes ago? It was more recent, where the person saw the demon claw come around and scratch Latin words into (gasps) the end table, and then when they woke up in the morning, there was, like, evidence that it – on their uh, Apple Watch or whatever – it showed that they were actually awake during that time oh my gosh i blocked this out of my memory
1: it really sounds familiar but like i don't i, I don't want to remember it
2: <laughs> well that's kind of like what kate is saying in it, at the beginning of this email when she said she had a dream that she woke up and some unseen force was pulling the blankets off of her bed and then in the morning when she woke up her, all of her blankets were off of her bed in a pile at oh the my end gosh. so it's like Things that are so strange and so terrifying that the the entity or your own mind makes you believe it's just a dream, but you're awake and you're experiencing it. Scary. Anyway, sleep tight, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) If you have frightening tales for us, please do share them. Frightening tales, just weird, interesting things that have happened to you. Sweet Mm -hmm. ones. We love sweet stories, family members visiting you, dogs, pets, cats, alien abductions, just, just anything. Just, just all of it. We want it all at this point, you've probably listened to more than one episode of the podcast, so you'll know that yeah, we really have no them to us one us theme at or my ghost
1: podcast at gmail dot com. And we have exciting news in about a week. We're waiting to get our own samples and then we will release the prints. We have new merch, and it's, well, we've never released it. We've had the design for a while. New, It's new old merch,
2: meaning in our brains, it's lived for a long time, but it's finally seeing the light. Shout out to our listener,
1: Emma, who designed this amazing merchandise for us, and I can't wait for you guys to see it. It says, Bigfoot is my boyfriend, <laughs> and it's incredible. You guys are going to love it as much as we do. is going to wear it 24-7, and I know that for a fact. I need it in every single color. I need it in
2: every single size. We need, like, a bra so you can wear it, like, underneath your clothes. You know in cartoons when they open up their closet and it's, like, the same outfit hanging yep. five times? That's going to be my closet. Yep. It's just going to be the same shirt every single day. We'll do a sweatshirt, shirt. There's, there's
1: going to be a bunch of different options. We have... A tank, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, a crop top, because why not? Because it's belly season. <laughs> and it's Bigfoot belly season. Yeah. So we're excited about that. So you can support us by purchasing some merch. You can also support us by joining our pyramid scheme and telling your friends about it. You can follow us on social media. Oh, write and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media. We have Instagram,
2: Facebook, Patreon. Oh my gosh. Patreon, thank you to our Patreon donors, but also first, thank you to Eric and Brooke Foster of Fire Digital for editing this episode and making us sound a whole lot better and taking out the many pee breaks that we take in this two, three hour recording. Yes. Which we try
1: to, we try to line them up together. We were in sync. Today. Yes. Together yeah. we pee. Together we
2: pee. That will be our next merch. And we will see you on, on the.